it was so refreshing today just to sing praises to Jesus and like the band and stuff is good, but there's just a moment where the voices of God's people as they sing back to him are sweet enough to keep us satisfied, right? That it, for, for whatever reason, it sounded as though our worship today was louder than what we have when we've got the drums and the keys. And I was just reminded of what heaven's going to be like. I was reminded of when we're with God and glory, what, what it's going to be like for all of God's people to sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And, and, and so that's fuel for what we're going to talk about today as we go in Second Peter and we just listen from a, a sage. As we listen and hear from God, as he gives us some simple reminders that may be familiar to most of us, but I think these reminders are going to continue to fuel and help us to be faithful Christians. And so before we begin, let's go to God and let's ask him for help. There's nothing good I have to offer. All I can give is what God has already spoken to us. And so um, join me in prayer. Father, I'm grateful that Father, that we can call upon your name and we can know that you hear us, that you haven't turned a deaf ear, you haven't blocked out our voices, Father, but yet you, where your word says that you delight in the prayers of your people. Father, we're in need of you to meet with us here today, and so I pray that the work that you've begun with us during this time as we worship you, you will continue as we continue to worship as we look at your word and hear from you. God, would you move me from out of the picture? Would you allow those that sit here today to get a greater picture and a clearer picture of your son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he's begun in us, but also the work that he will continue in us? God, we're just grateful that we can gather together as people, and I pray that, yeah, your power would be made known, your presence would be um, felt, and that your spirit would do work in our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. A man named W.S. Mervyn says this. He says, what you remember saves you. And as I came across this quote a few weeks ago, you know, at first it really didn't make much sense to me. But as I began to think about it and ponder on it and reflect, I realized how true that really is for our lives. For many of us that have gone through school or been in school, we know that when a final exams come, what we remember on those, in that next one or two hours, will save us from either passing or failing that class. For those of us who are in significant relationships that are married, we know that to forget our spouses or significant others' anniversary or birthday, come on now, that to forget those things can, or to remember those things will avoid or uh, uh, help us to avoid unnecessary and undesired conflict with one another. If what, remember, if what we remember saves us, then I think it's also fair to say that what we forget can place us in danger. We don't always think of forgetfulness in those two extremes of either saving us or placing us in danger. But I think that when we think about our spiritual lives and God, that we should do just that. Think of them in those two extremes. I've been a Christian now for 15 years, and one thing that I found in my own life, but also in the lives of others, is that the longer that you walk with Christ, you can find yourself becoming familiar with things that once rocked us to the core. It's kind of like God's 
grace and his mercy and his love for us don't really move us. In fact, they are often, we find ourselves disinterested and unmoved by the reality that God would even give his own son for us. The reality was there was a time where the mention of God's mercy would lead us to weeping with tears because we had tasted from his pool and we knew it was good, but yet now we find ourselves, God, I know that you're merciful, but unless that person shapes it in a new and fresh way, I really am kind of bored with it. We want to move past the fundamentals. We want to get beyond what has become normative because we think that That's what we need. My prayer today is that us as Cornerstone Church and those that are sitting in this room, that God would remind us of his goodness, and that would be a wake-up call to us. That we wouldn't necessarily desire to hear anything new, but that God would produce a satisfaction and a pleasure in the things that we already know. Today we begin a two-part series, and I've titled this Daily Reminders really for two things. One, it points to our need to be reminded of things that are familiar and common to us, but it also points to the frequency by which we need to be reminded. Moment by moment, day by day, God's truths don't get old, and we need them every hour. Join me as we read the text And bear with me as we're going to read about 15 verses, but I think we have to have the entire picture in order to put all these things in context. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Should be on the screen. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith equal to ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature. Escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire, for this reason make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. Therefore, I will always remind you about these things, even though you know them and are established in the truth you now have. But I think it's right, as long as I am in this bodily tent, to wake you up with a reminder since I know that I will soon lay aside my tent, as our Lord Jesus Christ has indeed made clear to you, and I will also make every effort so that you are able to recall these things at any time after my departure. Let the church say, Amen. 
Today we're really going to look at two things that I think we need to be reminded of in Scripture. And I think Peter reminds us of, as he's already made mention, that his primary ambition is not so that we would simply know of things, but that when he's gone and when he's left us, that we'd be able to call those things for ourselves. The first thing is that we need to look at the work that God has done for us. God is the one that establishes our faith and our salvation. But also we need to look at the work that he'll continue to do in us. God doesn't just abandon ship once, we've, once he saved us, but he's involved and active in the life of his people. And there is one intended goal, and that goal is that we would look more like Jesus Christ. He begins with Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith equal to ours, through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. If we were to understand who God truly is, we have to realize that God is in the business of changing people. How do we know this? Well, the first observation we can, t- we can make is that this letter that Peter is writing, he's writing to us as a changed man himself. Peter, uh, I-, I love Peter because Peter is a guy who, as we look throughout the Gospels, we'll see that we're able to walk along with his life and see how he changes and what the work that God is doing in his life. I want us to step back and to realize that this letter, the tone in which it is written, is from a man who had spent many of his years walking with the Lord, and now, after spending what scholars would say 30-plus years spending his life for Jesus, now pens what what is his last letter to the church. Peter could have have used this as an opportunity to affirm his love for us. He could have used this as an opportunity to get his life in order. But yet Peter takes this time to, as mentioned before, offer up to us what he believes we need in order to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to stop there because I think that what so often happens is when we approach books of the Bible, those first few sentences are things that we skip past. Because we think that, okay, I already know who's writing this. I already know who he's writing to, who he's writing to. And so, therefore, let's get to the meat of the subject. I think there's a danger in that because the Bible is clear that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training us up in righteousness so that we can be complete. And so if that is true, then that means that there's not one word or one sentence that isn't valuable for God's people. And so he begins with Simon Peter, a servant. Simon Peter, a servant. He's already announced to us that he's an apostle, but I think we need to notice that what he places before his apostleship is the fact that he is first a servant. But Peter wasn't always this way. Peter wasn't always, he never, he didn't always identify himself as such. Peter, for those that aren't familiar with their Bible, Peter was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was a part of his squad. And so with Peter, Peter being a fisherman, he was a blue-collar guy, he was a, a small business owner. The way that Peter comes to know Jesus is that his brother invites him to come and meet him. 
what's unique about this is that there was no lights, there was no flashing lights for Peter. It was a simple invitation by someone who had encountered Jesus for himself and then in turn invited him to come meet him as well. I'm grateful that the very same thing that worked with Peter has still working with God's people, that many of us in this room have been transformed simply by an invitation by a loved one or by someone that didn't know us to say, hey, come and meet this man called Jesus. Relational evangelism is important, and that's why we as a church, we advocate that to say that it's not enough to simply serve people. It's important for us to share our lives with people. This is what we see in the life of Peter, and so he receives this invitation, and this invitation changes his life. Peter is known as a loose lip guy. Peter could be seen probably as LeVar Ball, somebody who cashes more check with Checks with his, or writes more checks with his mouth that his behind can't cash. LeVar Ball is a guy who, though averaged a couple points in college, would say crazy things like he's better than Michael Jordan. Or that he could beat Shaquille O'Neal in the post. This is Peter. Peter would say things like, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I would rather die for, die for you than deny you. And yet, four verses later, Jesus and Peter and a Another disciple are with him, and Jesus tells him, Peter, look, look, I need y'all to stand by this tree and keep watch. Jesus goes away, and he prays, and he comes back only to find Peter asleep. It's like, bro, how are you going to tell me you're going to die for me, but you can't even pray for an hour? Fast forward a few verses, that same declaration that, God, I would rather die for you than deny you. Peter is faced with the decision of whether or not he will abandon his Lord through denial or choose to follow him even to his death. And Peter denies God not once, not twice, but three times. Peter was one who wanted to have his name in the lights. He wanted to see his face on Mount Rushmore of faith. And yet as the disciples bickered amongst each other, back and forth about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Peter, once wanting the fame and wanting the accolades, Jesus turns that upside down on his head. He says that whoever is least among you is great. Those words had to finally have penetrated down into the depths of Peter's heart and have done a work because now he refers himself to as a servant as an apostle, in essence, what he's saying to us, what he's saying to you and I is that to follow Christ, to be a servant of the Lord, means that I have no life of my own, no will of my own, no purpose of my own, no plan of my own. All that I am and all that I have and all that I will ever be is for the glory of the Lord. That is our cry and our plea and our identity as Christians that we first are servant, servants, that to be servants to the Lord is to be great in his kingdom. What a difference God has made in the life of Peter before, before the cross and the life that we now see in this particular letter after the cross. But how does this change take place? I think this is the first point that we need to draw attention to is that one, God is the author of our faith. He's the one that starts it. He's the one that begins it. Peter wants us to see in even his initial greetings to those that he's writing to that the means by which that happens. And so 
in verse, in, in, in verse 1, after he says he's a servant, an apostle, he says, to those who have received a faith. Let's stop there. One of the joys that I have is I love to give gifts to my friends. I love to give gifts to friends and family and those that I love simply because I like to provide for them things that they couldn't provide for themselves or would choose not to provide for themselves. Here we see a God who is giving us this picture of how as he looks out on humanity, he decides to offer up something that we didn't deserve and that we could never earn for ourselves. What he's saying is that what it means to be a Christian is that we've received something from God. It's not a faith that we've earned. It's not something that could be passed down or handed down to us like a recipe or a, a, a family picture. But the faith that we possess in God is first a work of God. I want us to fully grasp and understand that, that if you have made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not, it is not because of an act of your own will, but it is because of the work of God in your life. God starts it. He begins it. He, it originates with him. I also want to speak real quickly towards the reality of somebody saying, I've been saved my whole life. I want you to know that that category doesn't exist in the Bible. To say that you've been saved your whole life denies the very need for a savior in the first place. What Christ has done is he's looked upon humanity and he said, I see you in your present condition and it's hopeless. It's bleak. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to wrap up this gift in my son, Jesus Christ, and I'm going to send him to live the life that you could never live, to die the death that you alone deserved. And as a result, offer an invitation to you, this free gift of salvation. That is God's gift to all of humanity, the invitation to come and know me. But there's, there's, that is his gift. Secondly, he doesn't just say that we've received a faith, but that we've received a faith equal to ours. What does that really mean, a faith equal to ours? Why would he mention that in the text? I think the King James Version does a better job for us in helping us understand that as it says, to them that have obtained a like precious faith with us. The good news here is that for members of God's family, there's none, no family member that is favored any more or any less than the other. That in God's family all stand equal, all equally possess all of the privileges and benefits of what it means to know God. But I think there's even a deeper meaning than that. I think this can be an encouragement. This is meant to be an encouragement to those that are wrestling and struggling with doubts, that are wrestling and struggling with their faith. The idea of a precious faith being given to us means that God is attributing value to our faith regardless of the portion or how we feel about it. Let's linger here for a moment. There'll be some of y'all that look at pastors or leaders or just people in your life who've been instrumental. You may look to them and you may say, man, I'm not where they are. You may consider that they, they must have something that I don't have because they're killing the game. But I think the scriptures are pointing us to here as Peter says that we've obtained a faith like theirs, precious in God's sight. 
is that regardless of where you find yourself in the degree of how much faith you have, the nature in which that faith, that, uh, the nature of that faith that has been given to you is sufficient. That no matter how small, no matter how many questions or how many doubts you have, God doesn't give to his children bootleg gifts. God doesn't rewrap gifts that nobody else wanted and then give, give good gifts to some and bad gifts to others. That's not what God does. Every gift that God gives to his people is good. Every gift that God gives to his people is the same. God establishes the value of the gift that he gives. And I want to remind us that if Jesus says that faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains, then regardless of where you find yourself in your spiritual journey, there's a place for you at the Lord's table. That if the one be gold, then the other is gold as well. This is what God has given to us, a precious faith. And lastly, I think we see the means for which our faith is being obtained. And he says, to those who have received the faith equal to ours through the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our faith is only made possible by the righteousness of Jesus. For all of us in this room, there'll be a day where we'll have to stand before God and give an account for every word, every deed, and every action. And God will pull out this rap sheet on us because we've all sinned and offended this holy God. And that rap sheet is long, 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 long. And the question is, what will you say in that moment to excuse yourself from the penalty of your sins? What will you say in that moment to somehow get God to dismiss everything that you've done to offend him? And I'll tell you right now that the familiar statements that we all use of, God, you know my heart. God, I'm sorry. My bad. Those aren't enough to excuse the, what righteous judgment, um, the righteous judgment of God on our sins. But that's bad news for us. That's very bad news for us. If there's nothing we can say or nothing we can do to cause God to forget all of the sins we've done against them, then that means that we're in need of somebody who doesn't have that same rap sheet, who hasn't offended God or broken his rules and his laws in that way. And the good news is that that person is Jesus. Jesus has paid, he has lived the life that we couldn't live. Jesus has decided upon himself that he's going to come and he's going to step in our place to become a substitute on our behalf so that that record that God pulls out and he sees all the ways that we've sinned against him and we've offended him and what we deserve, now we have someone who meets that standard. Now we have someone whose life is good enough for God to accept. And so now for those that place their faith in Jesus, the righteousness that he offers us is now that of a robe. It's a robe that engulfs us so that when God looks upon us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees the righteousness of his son. This is what God is offering to us, his righteousness. And this is why we sing songs like Cornerstone, where my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but holy trust in Jesus' name. The good news for us today is that Jesus has paid it all. He's done everything that's needed in order to make us right with God. But if he left it just there, we in our own strength couldn't respond to God. And so what he has to do now is he has to 
give us new hearts that would have a desire. He has to remove the blinders off of our eyes that Satan has put to keep us from seeing God's goodness. And he has to help us to extend our hand by faith to say, God, I will place my trust in you as Lord. This is the work that God does in our life. And so Peter, in these two verses, is making it clear and plain to us that my life has been transformed. And I'm writing to those who share in that same transformation that have known my Lord in the way that I know. And we have to understand that God is the one who begun the work. But it doesn't just stop there. If we stop in verses 1 and 2, we'll think that what all that God desires for us is for us to be saved. We'll think that as long as I walked down the aisle or was baptized as a child or, um, or, or said the sinner's prayer, that, that I'm good. God's not a deadbeat father. God doesn't bring us into his family and then decide one day, you know what, you're good enough now, so let me go on to the next one. That's not what God does. My second point is just is this, that God will finish what he started. Let's look at verses 3 and 4, and it says, His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these, he has given us very great and precious promises. What God begins, he will see through to the end. He doesn't just give us faith, but now he actually supplies us with everything that we're going to need to live that faith out. In middle school, there were these things that we go on called field trips, right? And so typically, you know, field trips, sometimes you get excited about them, but sometimes they try to take us places like museums and libraries and Stuff like that. And it's like, who wants to? That's ordinary. Like, step your game up a little bit. However, there were these times of growing up in Saudi Arabia where we would leave the country. And so every time that you would leave the country, they give us this thing called a packing list, right? And this list was a written out explanation of this is everything that you need to bring on the trip. So make sure you have it. Now, you could ask the question, why did they do this? Why did they give us this packing list? I think the obvious answer is that to make sure that we had everything that we needed. But I think to dig a little bit deeper, the reason why they wanted to make sure that we brought everything on the list that they're required is so that we can enjoy everything that the trip had to offer. This is what Jesus is making available to us. This is what we've entered into, a lifelong journey of enjoying God to the fullness. This doesn't just stop at the moment in which we're saved, but it continues on into the day where our faith is manifested. Where we actually will stand face to face with our Lord and see him for who he really is. In this text, I think what we need to be reminded of is that God's outcome, desired outcome for our lives is to make us look like Christ. God's desired outcome for our lives is to make us look more like Jesus. And so my question for us as a church today is, do you really desire to be godly? Do we really desire to be holy? Do we hunger and thirst for it as if that's the greatest thing that we could ever have? Or are there other things in our life that seem more satisfying? 
I think the idea of God's holiness, even for his children, sometimes scares us. And the reason why I think we're fearful of it is because it's going to require for us to stop serving those, subs, those secondary masters. It's going to require us to give up our idols and to fully give ourselves fully to Jesus, our Lord. How can God be enough when there are so many other things in this world to enjoy as well? Well, I think we have a distorted view of God's holiness. When you think of godliness or holiness, I think some of us in this room would think of restrictions. A list of do's and don'ts. We might think of back if you grew up in the church that holiness was the picture of women wearing long skirts all the way down to their ankles. Guys coming to church with suits and their best fits. There was this idea of holiness was, oh, you don't drink anymore. You don't, make, you don't wear makeup anymore. You don't smoke. You don't do all of these manufactured, man-made things. And that's our picture of holiness. Holiness is much more of a, holiness may even be a desired outcome for us. But it doesn't seem attainable. Many of us may not even think of holiness at all. Unless we're in church or at Bible study or in some Christian function. However, the Bible describes holiness as being beautiful, as being treasure, as being something that are sweet and lovely for God's people. Why? Because it's rooted in the character of God. That is why holiness is so appealing is because it first causes us to gaze upon the Lord, our God. Holiness isn't one of many attributes of God. It is the sum of all of his attributes. God loves perfectly. He enforces justice perfectly. He is set apart from us. There's no chink in his armor. When we get a glimpse of Jesus... It forces us to start looking at the way that Jesus loved people. It forces us to start being amazed and basking in the reality of how he served others, how he laid his life down for others, how he forgave others. All of these things begin to draw us in as we see the perfect picture of what it means to be holy in our humanity, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we're captivated by the beauty of God, Holiness doesn't feel like a duty. It feels like a delight. The problem is our hearts. The problem is that we are much more satisfied going and drinking in the muddy pools. We're we're, we're much more satisfied or thinking that we'll be satisfied drinking from the sewer than we would the pristine, clean, refreshing waters of God's living word. God is calling us back to say, now I want you to look at me differently. I want you to see me for what what it is, who I am, but also what it is I'm offering to you. God's not after just part of us. God is not after just part of us. He's after our whole hearts. It's not enough to say, God, I'll love you and money. I'll love you and marriage or kids or that pornography or that extra spouse. It's not enough to say, God, I want you and I love you, but I also want my blackness. I want to be woke. Let me speak to that real quick. Listen, (laughs) we're in a time right now where wokeness is the new buzzword, right? And my fear for us as minority Christians is that we'll become more intrigued and more captivated by being woke 
about our natural man and our natural heritage, that we'll forget the fact that God has called us from out of that, given us a new identity, and that our main thrust and our main push for life should be God's aim, God's ambition, and seeing things rightly through God's sight. Be careful when you find yourself wanting to read more and more materials about our history as black people than you do wanting to read your word. Let us be careful not to be distracted by worldly affairs. These are worldly things. These things will come and go. Let us be more concerned about God's business and realizing that God's word helps us see everything rightly. If we just look to that, we won't see things rightly. We'll be hateful and prejudiced and find ourselves unloving towards our other brothers and sisters in Christ that don't look like us. But if we see things through God's scriptures, he brings everything into balance. He helps us to love one another rightly so that the world looks upon us and doesn't see what they see in the world. I'm grateful for my white brothers and sisters, the Asian, the Latinos, everyone that is here today because guess what's more important than just being black or my black people? The brothers and the family of Christ. That's my family. God is not after just some of us. He wants all of us. He's a jealous God. He wants everything about us. Some of us may ask, well, if that's true, if God's given us everything, if his divine power is enabling everything, uh, 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 divine power has enabled me to have everything I need for godly living, then why do I still wrestle with sin? Why does it seem like the same sin keeps lingering behind the door, waiting to devour me every time I walk into the room? I want to make sure we understand that the Christian life is not about perfection, but it is about progress. God has given us everything that we need in order to live godly lives. But there still will be those times that despite our desire to live holy, we'll find ourselves thinking about things that we shouldn't think about. We'll find ourselves saying things to other people that we shouldn't say. We'll find ourselves acting out of pocket and out of character, right? Let us not indict God's goodness and what he's offering us simply because we're unwilling to remove the things that are hindering us for enjoying him fully. I don't think the problem is that God hasn't given us everything that we need. The problem is, is that we have so much junk in our lives, so many things that we're holding on to that it's hindering us from fully enjoying and appreciating and valuing all that God has given to us in the first place. We find ourselves joyless, not because God hasn't given us joy, but because we've sought to find joy outside of him. We're looking for everywhere and anyone else for our satisfaction and fulfillment instead of God himself. Our jobs, especially those that are grinders, y'all are hustlers, you about your business. Don't look to your job to give you worth. God's already given that to you. Give it your best and, 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 and pursue it with excellence. But at the end of the day, no matter how successful you are, if you don't find that satisfaction in God, that acceptance in God, then you'll look at all of the wealth that you've accumulated in this life, and then all you'll have to say is that it wasn't enough. I needed something else. I've wasted my life. We look to that girl or that guy for significance. We think that marriage is going to be the thing that helps us to that meets all of our desires to be known and to be loved unconditionally. 
tell you right now that if you look to your spouse to be God, you're going to be disappointed. Your wife, your husband can't provide what you need in order to be satisfied completely. Only God can do that. But we also look to platforms and accolades, our names in the sky, as fuel longing for approval. Outside of God, man will never be satisfied. Outside of God, you will always thirst for more. The question is, will you spend your entire life chasing after things that will only leave you empty in the end? Or will you this day turn and choose and to see God for who he is as holy and perfect and the good gifts that he offers us? This Scottish Bible teacher, Alexander McLaren, he wrote, May we have as much of God as we will, or we may have as much of God as we will. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand and bids us to take all that we want. If a man is admitted into the bullion vault of a bank and told to help yourself and yet comes out with only a penny, whose fault is it that he's poor? God has opened up the floodgates for us to say, have all of me, have as much of me as you want. And if we find ourselves still craving and hungry and deficient and depleted, then it's not God's fault, it's ours. What are the things in our life that are keeping us from truly experiencing all that God would have for us? On a lighter note, I think that we as the church need to be like Diddy in his, um, in his documentary and this one moment where you know, Puffy's being interviewed, and, and he's making this statement. He says, man, you know what? I don't want the Chrysler that looks like a Bentley. I want the Bentley. The, and that's funny, but how many of us are content with the Chrysler that looks like the Bentley? How many of us are content with just being holy enough or having just enough of God so that others can look upon us and be impressed? God is saying, no, 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 don't get it twisted. Don't settle for the knockoff. I'm making it possible so you can have the real thing. I'm offering to you the real thing. So, so let's not be content. Let's not settle for imposters. Let's really desire from God that he would produce within us that which he makes, that's, that which he offers. The second point, the second resource is resource that God makes available to us is that he gives us precious and great promises. He gives us precious and great promises. He says, by these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desires. This doctor approached this Bible scholar and he was complaining about how it was difficult for him to get anything out of Bible study. And so this man, this doctor, he tells the Bible study, how, please tell me, how can I study so that it will mean something to me? To which the scholar responds, and he says, read it. He says, I, I do read it. What do you mean? And the guy says, read it some more. He says, how? And he says, take some book and read it 12 times a day for a month. And so the teacher recommended Second Peter later on, but the man recalls how him and his wife would read Second Peter 
two or three times in the morning. And then they would read it two or three times at lunch. And then they'd get to the evening at the dinner table and they'd read it two or three times again. And so as they did this over and over and over, he found himself talking Second Peter to everyone that he knew. He recalls seeing the entire world through the lens of what 2 Peter was talking about. Teardrops mingled with the crayon drops and the markers of his pen as he read 2 Peter on his knees, as he prayed through 2 Peter. And so he comes to a point where he goes to his wife and he says, see the mess that I've made in this book? To which his wife responds and says, yes. But as the pages of the book grow black, your life is becoming white. There's something about taking in God's word and how it works within us that when we really devote ourselves and saturate saturate us or saturate ourselves in it, what God produces is a reflection of himself. God begins to satisfy our deep and longing urges. I so desire To love God's word like that. And not just love it in an arbitrary way where it's like, yeah, I love God's Bible. I love the Bible. But to be committed to the task of using every moment and every opportunity to read it. To depend upon it in the same way that I depend on oxygen. It's what we need. He says that these precious promises are intended so that we can become more like God, share in the divine nature. Think of the promises of God similar to a grape going through the wine press. That the way that wine is formed is that they take these grapes and they begin to either step on them or put them through a machine. And that the end result is this sweet, tasty juice that flows. Well, in the same way, God is giving us these precious promises that are great, but The way that they become precious is because God is going to use everything in our lives in order to produce the end result. In order for us to view his word for what it is that he will bring it to fruition. This often comes through suffering and hardship and pain. When my wife first, when we first moved to Atlanta, we moved here for the purpose of, we believe God was calling us to help with a church plant a few miles down the road. And there was a month where we found ourselves at the point where we had depleted all of our savings that we had, um, that we had saved up in order to get here. We didn't really know how what we were going to pay our bills. And there's a scary feeling when you have a family and kids and you know all your bills are due and there's zero in the banking account. There's nothing else that we could pull from and draw from. But I'm reminded of Matthew 6.33, that if you seek ye first the kingdom of God, all the other things will be provided to you. That if God can take care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, how much more can he take care of those he loves? That promise became true because that day I learned that God was my provider. That God truly was Jehovah Jireh. That God was working even that situation to bring me to the greatest point of my need for him to show me I got you. You don't have to fret. You don't have to fear. You don't have to doubt me. I got you. And that's when those, pre- that's when those promises become precious. When we see the fulfillment of them in our lives. I also think that promises like Jude where it says that he is, God is able to keep us from falling. 
in a church this size, there's so, there are issues and problems and just as we work the life of the people God's given, given us, that we have to cling to these promises as we deal with hard cases. That God is able to keep us from falling and present us in his presence. That that's good news for somebody who's been at the brink of falling. That's good news for somebody that if God had given you what you wanted, you would have messed your entire life up. You would have ruined it all. And yet God in his providence and him working in and through the point in which you were about to step off the cliff, you got that phone call from a brother or friend. Somebody popped up at your house and said, let's talk. And reminded you of the goodness of God's grace and told you, don't do that, brother. It's not worth it. This is how the promises of God are made true in our life when we see them fulfilled. Church, I think practically what this looks like is that we need to start our days prepared to cling to the preciousness of God's promises. Every morning we need to wake up and we need to go to God's word. And we need to pick one or two verses, one or two promises that God is making to his people and meditate on it and write it down and memorize them. So that when we go out about our day and we find ourselves in those moments where you start to question, you begin to doubt God. You can pull those promises of God will never leave me or forsake me. Those promises that God will not turn his back on me regardless of what I'm going through. Those promises that even if I fail, even if I fall, God's love for me is unconditional and that I am his bride and he is the husband. These are the promises that keep us anchored, keep us faithful. My friends, this is a call to holiness. This is a call to realize that we've spent enough time living the way we wanted to live before Christ. We've done that. Let us not be like the dog that turns around after tasting good meat, after eating good vegetables and meals. Let us not be the dog that returns back to the vomit that he spit up before that meal was provided. We focused our time on all that God has done for us. The fact that he establishes our faith. It's by his grace that he gives it to us. But also the work that he'll continue to do in his people. That he's working in all of us to produce godliness. To make us more like his son. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I'm, my, my prayer is that we would. That we would believe that you are more satisfying than everything else. My prayer is that we as a church would really embody and be diligent to encourage one another, to spur one another on in love and good deeds, but also to remind each other of these, ba these, these basic truths, Lord, that are still so sweet and so rich. That, God, you've done everything for our behalf. You've done the heavy lifting, God, God but also you're, you're still at work in us. God, give us patience as we endure and as we bear burdens with our brothers and sisters. Let us be reminded that you don't abandon the work that you started. And Father, I pray that as a church, that as we look year by year, that as we engage in relationships with one another, that we, we would be the type of people to look for the evidences of God's grace in one another's lives, that we would encourage and point out and affirm that God is 
definitely at work. Let, that help, let those things help us endure to the end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.